So we're all working on the dark sky here. And um, we're all trying to get this industry to focus on its number one issue right now. We've solved the energy efficiency issue. That's out the window. That's done. Now we need to solve this dark sky issue. And everyone's coming on board. And it's starting with Keystone Technologies. Go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. They got their exit fixtures. They're color selectable. Um, they committed to this to help us with this dark sky show because I think the whole industry really needs to make a focus on this, and we're going to. Um, on this episode of the show, we it's a special release. We brought on Pete Strasser, who is the uh, what is he, Scotty, the technical director of the International Dark Sky Association? I Tech director, yes, technical director. So this guy knows what's up, and so we had Jane and I got into it with him. We we asked him all kinds of questions. It was a great show. So thank you very much, Pete Strasser, for coming on, and of course the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Hey, Keystone's a longtime member. Everyone's getting behind Dark Sky. Let's do it. Let's do it as an industry. Let's do it as an association. Let's do it in our businesses. Let's try to get behind this issue. Let's start to learn. LS Evolve modules on it should be coming out early next year on how to do it, what to do. For right now, give a listen on why. Hey, Pete, how's it going? Doing fine. Say hi to Jane Slade. Hello, Jane. How are you doing? Good, Pete. Nice to see you. I met you in 2017, I believe, at the Green Building uh, booth that you had as the IDA. Oh, yes. Nice to see you again. Yeah, me too. So, Pete, um, let me ask you, uh, just right off the top here, what this show is about, it's not technical training, but with you, we're going to get a little more into that than we will with other guests. Um, But let me ask you a question to start off here. Why should distributors really start to focus, train their sales teams and their technical people on the five uh, principles of responsible outdoor lighting? Well, it's something that, that should be inherent to every lighting project. Um, for years, we have promoted uh, the notion that when considering lighting, always default to the task. What is what is the task at hand? And in so doing, you should always light where you need it, when you need it, in the amount necessary, and no more. All else is waste. It's a waste of resources. It's a waste of uh, tax dollars. It's, it's a waste of money. There's no reason to put in lights that don't follow the task. It, it just doesn't make sense. So we combine with the IES, um, the, the notion of those principles while also taking into account now color temperature, uh, which is a, a, a growing factor uh, in, in the lighting world owing to high brightness white LEDs. So you have a customer. So I think what you're talking about, you're referring to there, and Jane, maybe you can comment on this a little bit, is the lighting design process. So, you know, people who are assessing what the light is used for um, and then deciding how many lights and, and so on and so forth. This would be very common in the new construction process. But in the renovation and retrofit process, it's almost non-existent, Pete. The distributor is not going to be designing the lighting. It's not, he's not going to be, or she's not going to be heavily involved in what the outcome of the lights are. They're just... They're selling lights to contractors. Perhaps they're installing. What, why should they take the time to convince a customer? Then maybe this is a better question. Why should distributors take the time to convince a customer and talk to a customer about dark sky and the five principles and ask those kinds of questions? Why should we do that? Well, in many cases, you're also looking at the notion of aesthetic. Um, often a, a lighting is considered kind of the, the last thought. I have to light what am I going to do? And it becomes quite frequently a lowest bid operation. And mm-hmm. quite frankly, the, uh, the lowest bid products um, typically have uh, a lot of glare. Um, you usually don't see design elements that, that look good during the daytime. So day view um, aesthetics are affected. Um, you end up with a very institutional uh, appearance. For you know an apartment complex or business complex, uh, you'd, you'd like it to look nice. Um, that's usually not the case with the lowest bid, and you usually end up with a significant amount of glare. Um, usually, a dark sky friendly uh, product will also 
the light will be more diffuse. It will be even more evenly spread. You're not going to see a tremendous amount of hot spots. Um, I think probably the most egregious would be those large floodlights you see up on the top of poles or bare wall packs. There's really, yeah, they're going to be cheap, but they're also going to be blinding uh, as you walk past them. And the whole notion of lighting is to enhance visibility. And usually with the lowest bid uh, approach, they often impede visibility with the notion of glare. Uh, everybody has heard the term lurking in the shadows. And it's quite often the bad lighting design has created the shadows in which evil can lurk. A better lighting design is going to be more uh, better thought out, more evenly uh, lighted, and you're not going to end up with blinding glare smashing you in the face with a with a wall pack or a high floodlight up up on a pole. Um, there seems to be a bias that that is what people expect. Um, I know for a fact that people will think a an area is not suitably lighted if it's not glary enough, and, mm -hmm. and it's kind of a an odd uh, odd concept, but it, I go back to the, right when, uh, the days when people used mercurochrome and alcohol for cut grapes, and out came a product called Bactine. It didn't have alcohol, and people used it, and it didn't sting. That was a marvelous thing. And people thought, well, if it doesn't sting, it doesn't work. So they added alcohol, make it sting. And then people thought, okay, now it's working. Now, now it must be okay. And I've seen that in the lighting industry. People will say, oh, this area is not bright enough because I can't see the source. Never mind what the light was supposed to do. But uh, it's kind of overcoming that bias. And that's I've even seen that among designers. Say, if it's not bright and glary, it, it's not suitably lighted. And that's simply not the case. So... Pete, you are the technical director of the IDA. Can you yes. please tell us more about your role and what you do? I'm there to keep the my pulse, my finger on the pulse of the lighting industry. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's such a rapidly developing issue, um, particularly with LEDs. They hold such tremendous promise for lighting, with the ability to control, the ability to, to tune colors. But again, there's, there's peril as well. Um, the safety issue is, is it something that's concerning? Um, the, the notion of blue light at night and how it can affect people's circadian rhythms, how it can affect um, the nocturnal habitat. These are things that are still being investigated. Um, I, I try to stay on top of what is being developed seeing how it does relate to uh, the, the dark skies. Um, when we see LEDs uh, being used prolifically, what mm -hmm. uh, an unintended consequence is there's tremendous amount of savings associated with using them. And what will happen is people start using more of something as it becomes cheaper. So what was a, a good illuminance level for a, a previous technology they're putting in LEDs, they're making tremendous savings, and they're saying, well, let's just add more light and it'll be more safe, or it'll be more whatever. And that's simply because the, the remarkable efficiency of LED efficacy, um, people are starting to use more of it, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, part of the, of the five principles is to uh, use the amount of light that's necessary. Um, a, a, Poor and unfounded trend is well, more light means more safe, and that's just that's not the case. Um, one of the problems with IES recommended practices is they're stated as minimum, and there is not a statement of maximum, and there needs to be some means of addressing that. Uh, I understand the rationale for um, higher light levels in some areas with the old technology, because it had to do with uniformity ratios. Uh, in order to meet uh, uniformity ratios, you had to have a really bright spot underneath the source. And as you went further out, um, the, the, to, to meet the ratio or to meet the illuminance levels between the spacing, they had to be very bright in those spots. And with properly designed LEDs, you can get nice, even lighting. You don't need to do that. 
But the trouble is, they hey, we're saving 75%. We can save 50% and add 25% more light, and we're that much better off. Well, that, that's not a justification. More light doesn't mean more safe. Better light means more safe. So that's <clears throat> the concept of safety is such a wild term. It's become so incredibly crazy over the last eight or nine months. And, you know, it's almost like our society needs to be reminded in some senses that safety is not a virtue. It's not something we strive for. You know, it, it's, it's the mitigation of risk. That's what safety is. Measures of safety is a mitigation of risk. And so understanding that, you know, being alive means taking risks um, and safety is something we use to mitigate certain types of risks so that, you know, people aren't getting killed like crazy all over the place. But there are situations where um, safety becomes overbearing and controlling and creates glare, you know, things like glare, um, unnecessary glare. But I wanted to to, to tell you, go back a little bit technically here. I've written down like seven points here, but, um, and bidding, you say bidding. I think a lot like, oh, the bid, the lowest bid or whatever. I don't think from a distributor perspective, most of the deals don't go down like that. Most of it is a, a contractor comes into your office and says, or calls you up on the phone or is on your website and says, I, I need to replace five uh, 400 watt metal halide wall packs or five 400 watt metal halide or HPS wall packs. What color do you want? I want it to be as white as possible. Oh, okay. And, you know, so like the situation is not one of providing the lowest price. Oftentimes what a distributor is doing is helping the customer get the outcome they want. But how as distributors do we then say, well, that's not the right outcome. The outcome you want is an outcome where you have shielded wall packs, you, re you reduce the glare, and you follow the five principles of responsible outdoor lighting. How do we switch it from giving the customer whatever they want, whatever they say they want, or the contractor, whatever he... I need it as bright as possible because I want to get paid. And if I make it as bright as possible, I'm going to get paid, right? How do we then convince them that like that's that's the that's where the rubber meets the road between the distributor and the contractor between the distributor and the end customer. How do we? What arguments should we use other than the five principles, which you know, we can bring to them and say, "Hey, look at this." But how, why should they feel like they should do this, Pete? That's what I'm trying to say. Well, there to put on. I want it as bright as possible. Where do you draw the line? Are they going to put in twice as many? Are they going to insist on a thousand watt equivalent? What, what what is, why are they going, why are they saying that? And there has to be an, an understanding and a recognition that brighter isn't everything. It has to be, what you're trying to do is enhance visibility. You're trying to make the scene so you can look at it. If you're providing glare under the auspices of safe, you're not doing, you're not doing what you say. So the, the distributor needs to educate the person and say, just because it's brighter doesn't mean it's better. That's, that's mm -hmm. simply not the case. Um, you know, and, and sometimes people have to be convinced of that. Um, if you say, if, if you put in a, a light source, here's a great question. Ever been on stage? Ever been on television? Okay. And if, when you're there and you look out, what do you see? Nothing. Because you have bright mm -hmm. light shining in your face. Okay. Mm -hmm. That is... That's not a safe situation. So if you have four wall packs blasting and you're walking towards the door, say to a doorway or something, or a space between buildings, you are making an area less safe. You are not fulfilling the, the very task that you had in hand to make it visible. You start, there's a diminishing return with brighter being more safe. Better lighting, directing it where it needs to go needs to be the critical thing. So I, I can't see why a, uh, a designer has to say, okay, I'll give you everything you want, but you're not, you're, you're not doing the right thing. You should be putting in light that's going to enhance visibility, not impede it. And, and that's, that's just the notion of how the lights are, are 
installed, the intensity, how they're directed. A, a full cutoff wall pack is going to light scene perfectly well, but not have this glare in your eyes. And the, I think also people who make that uh, uh, ask for that aren't over 55. Okay, when I hit 55, 56, the veiling luminance, the glare that happens inside my eyes because of that light, it, it's like looking through a veil, like looking through gauze. And it is no longer enhancing my visibility. If the light is shielded and the scene is illuminated, that's the desired outcome. Not putting in a light source that's going to be bad for a large segment of the population. Pete, I, I think a lot about dark skies and how we can properly educate people because I feel, you know, Mike's talking about how do we convince the distributors that more light isn't better, isn't sexier, isn't going to get the job paid for. Or how do we tell homeowners that more light on their yard isn't necessarily safer? I remember when I was really little, I was talking to my dad about painting and how hard it was. And he said to me, well, the thing that makes it so hard is that if you're, if you're painting anything, the light changes constantly, all day long. And it never occurred to me. It was something that I had to kind of really think about. And then I never looked outside at the light the same way after my dad said that to me. And my point of bringing up this story is to say that I don't think that it's intuitive for most people to think that the light is changing or that the arc of the natural daylight cycle is, is something that needs to be respected as something that has been honored um, over time for all of this time on the planet. So if we need to educate the distributors, if we need to edu educate the homeowners and here we are, we're, you are a part of the IDA. There's also groups like the IES. How do we educate? How do we get this information across to the population of the earth? <laughs> there, really, there needs to be, yeah. The key is it has, to, it, it has to be experiential. You have to see it to believe it. But without that, uh, condition of actually seeing to understand that better light is safe than more light, often people don't believe it until they see it. So there needs yeah. to be some means of experiencing bad light and experiencing good light. How that's going to happen, I don't know. I've done it in you know all the presentations I've made for the past 15 years over the globe. I have uh, samples of good lighting and bad lighting. Uh, some places I'll come in, I'll I, went, I gave a presentation to a bunch of uh, uh, police officers who insist more light is more safe. So I had two flashlights and I shined them in their faces. I says, can you see really great now? Is this good? Well, that, that's not the way to go. And then I, I've had to explain it. You know, if you're if a, if a, a police officer was responding to a, a crime at a local convenience store and up on the light are two huge floodlights, they pull into the, the yard. Here you are. Suddenly you're on stage. You can't see anything. The people at the store, the perpetrators, could look out and they've got a perfect view of you now. How about change it so you have better lighting on the on the premises, light shining down, not glare, and that way you restore the tactical advantage to the responding officer. Why wouldn't that be a desirable condition? But People says more light is more safe. There was a, a, a robbery at the, at the facility uh, last week. So he puts up a thousand watt blinding light on the roof. Now he's going to be safe. Why not put two on? It'd be twice as safe. And that doesn't make sense. There has to be the experience of what good lighting is. Glare is a point of view thing. So you may say to the officer, I'm shining a flashlight in your face. There's a reason why police officers do that. There's a reason they do that mm -hmm. because it blinds you and gives them 100% clarity. So glare is a, is a point of view issue. So maybe what people want is the person coming towards their facility to have all manner of glare in their eyes. Maybe that's what they want. And the people inside can see everything crisp and clear. Um, like the guy on stage analysis is a point of view analysis. Not everybody mm -hmm. has that point of view. Some people have the point of view of the audience so they can see everything they want to see perfectly. So this idea, you know, that 
you know, we're, I, I don't think we're going to win the argument by saying more light is not safe because I think there is a, there is, um, there is an argument that more life, light equals more safety. I think the argument is that, you know, pr not everything has to be lit up like a prison yard. And what are the, what are the trade-offs that you're making for this point of view safety that, or this angle of attack that one person has or one group of people have over the other? One person's in the glare, one person's not in the glare. The person not in the glare can see everything. Right, but then that person drives out of that parking lot and they can't see anything because they've gone from a hundred foot candles or whatever to zero. Right? Like that's the trade-off of the Walmart parking lot. It's that maybe the Walmart parking lot is safer from your perspective, and I'm never gonna be able to convince you otherwise of that. So maybe that is true, but what when it as soon as that person leaves the parking lot, they're less safe because now they're driving a vehicle onto the road and they can't see the 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 road they're driving onto that well. Everyone has experienced this when pulling out of a gas station that's super bright and you can barely see the pedestrians walking on the sidewalk beside the gas Thank station. Thank you for making my point. Yeah, that's exactly that's right. A, it's a, but it's a trade-off. More light is more, but it, there is there is a point at which more light does not contribute to safety. Yes, you, what's that, that point? Those sorts of things, well, those things are actually uh, looked at. I mean, uh, in, in traffic, uh, the, the, the research that's done at Virginia Tech, uh, Ron Gibbons Laboratory, they have tested to the point where in certain intersections stuff, as you go over one foot candle or 1.2 foot candle or 10, 15 lux, adding more doesn't decrease accident. Adding more is not helpful. And then it can become problematic. You get more because of excessive. So the idea that the, the recommended practice of how bright something should be should be seen as not a minimum, be seen as an adequacy. So if a person puts in a, a, a gas station at 20 foot candles at the pump, which happens to be four times the highest level for a, a zone one gas, then the, the person across the street says, I can use my lighting as advertising, and they'll put in 40 foot then the other corner puts this well, I'll put in 60. So it becomes a ratcheting race of see me. That's where you need ordinances. That's where you need things to say, no, there is a maximum level. So adding more lighting is no longer becoming an issue of safety. It's becoming an issue of commerce or advertising or competition. So there needs to be ordinances in place that establish a maximum amount of light. There needs to be studies that indicate how how safe you actually are by visibility. Um, I think... Invisibility you know, really is a, safe, too. <laughs> like, ah, okay, let's go back, though. If you're on a, a place that has a 112-foot camp, which yeah. is a, a measure that I measured in a, in a gas station in Tennessee, <laughs> a 112-foot candle, insane. Um, what was my eye doing? I had this thing called an iris, and it was torquing down yeah, sure. because it was so damn bright. Okay, think of it. You're at night, and the light is, you've made it so bright that my eyes are saying, this is too much light. Sunglasses. That's, that's a foolish application. You can see a heck of a lot better. You can see evenly, nice, with 10-foot candles. Sure. You can see color rendering. There's no need to have it 10 times as high. And that excessive amount does the very thing you say. Your eyes become adapted to that insanely bright area. And you leave the area, even with high brights, your eyes could not see how, you know, a, a, a safe uh, environment in front of you as you're driving. I would think of, of that kind of lighting as a reckless practice because you're, you're actually inducing non-visibility. And that, mm. that, to me, is something that should be uh, regulated. So I completely agree with you, Pete, that the issue is that light is really experienced. You, you can talk about light all you want, but it doesn't really tell you what a person's experience is. So that means that there's sort of an educational problem in how we're approaching dark skies because we are talking a lot about it. Great. But it's like most people are not going to really pick up on these concepts without directly experiencing them. 
I also think that we're kind of leaving people in between. So we have, you know, distributors who maybe want to do the right thing. I mean, maybe they're aware of it. Maybe they aren't. Um, but I truly believe people are not monsters. They don't set out to just blare light unnecessarily. And so I think what's happening is that there's a lot of differing opinions among the organizations that are creating the uh, thought leadership. And so you have lighting designers who have one opinion, you have um, advocates for dark skies who have other opinions. So how do you propose that we kind of get a more singular thought about dark skies and how to advocate for for um, We dark would skies? love for if everybody followed the IAS dark uh, our, our organization may not be necessary. Okay, it, it's it's that simple. If people simply followed those recommended practices, the illuminance levels that are that are specified here, they're they're excellent. Um, the the notion of it being experiential, absolutely, I we fully agree. When we have our our annual meetings, we go out and say this is good lighting, this is bad, this is why, etc. We can even do that in Tucson. Okay, there's bad lighting in Tucson, even though we have excellent law uh, ordinances in place. Enforcement is the key to any ordinance. And in many cases, uh, even communities that have lighting ordinances in place, they're really not enforced all that well. So it, it, it goes down to even you know the enforcement level, not really getting uh, a, an ordinance on the books doesn't solve the problem. Um, it, that, that's when the work starts. Or, you know, people will sit on their laurel saying, ah, oh, we got an ordinance in our organization, everything's done. Uh-uh. That's, that's when the work starts. That's when you have to have test starts to be policed. Consider Florida and the sea turtles. We're talking about endangered species here. To get those things on endangered species look for years, and we thought, problem solved. And now you can go down to Florida all on the panhandle, and you can see a new 4,000 Kelvin streetlight blasting onto the beach, totally in violation of everything. That's done. And people go, yeah, okay. Um, so just because you've got some laws on the books and doesn't mean the problem is solved. It, there has I, to be the actually, willingness what, to Actually, what, what you're talking about actually makes things worse. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. Regulation without enforcement means you squeeze the compliers, right? So when you, like, if you have very, if you, if you make regulations, like lighting ordinances, say, and some people honor those lighting ordinances, then they're at a disadvantage to those seeking the gas station with the brighter light. So in fact, the person complying gets punished because yeah. they're not allowed to have their gas station as bright as yep. the person who isn't complying. And so yes. that regulation without enforcement makes the problem worse, not better. No question. Yes, I fully agree. No question about it. Yeah, I say people will get an ordinance in place; they think they're done. That's not the case at all. Yeah, you're just going to punish agreement. those that do the right thing. You know, yeah. um, you know, one of the things that happened with lamp recycling was that they—I'm not going to say any company names or anything, but they set up a, a thing. Anybody that reported to them got audited. Right. Right. And then they had all sorts oh. of problems and fines and. Sure. Like anybody that tried to comply with, yeah, I had, you we're know, under the microscope. Yeah. All of a sudden, you know, we're in a full water audit of your business and nobody else in the plaza sent the form in. And so they're, they're, you know, they have the information on somebody, let's say, for example, somebody fills mm -hmm. something out. They, they have to enforce these ordinances correctly. Um, not. Um, and they can't squeeze compliers. Otherwise, you're going to create uh, you're going to create an atmosphere of non-compliance, or you're going to you're going to actually encourage non-compliance in a way. Yeah, well, that that sort of thing. If, if it's not enforced, you're absolutely right. I remember seeing that in California with um, around um, automobile maintenance, where they had to you know if you had the slightest oil spill, you had to gather up with with uh, the proper absorbent and take it into and so those were the places that suddenly got inspected, whereas another guy would just take a shovel and throw it in the garbage and be done with it, and he wasn't inspected. So, yes, enforcement is the key to these, these ordinances. There's no question about that. Yes. So, Pete, 
I, I see that you won the IESNA President's Award for your work with the Model Lighting Ordinance, uh, speaking of ordinances and, and creating uh, legislation for municipalities to adopt. Um, I wanted to ask you, and congratulations on that, because that has been something that I, I constantly refer to it in my work, and it is a super important benchmark. But I know that it was a very, very hard uh, compromise to come across uh, organizations. So can you talk about that work of your work on the committee and, and how that came to be? It was it started even before I was joined the company. Uh, which was in 2006, there was already work that was being done. And it uh, it was an onerous task. I said we had kind of uh, dissimilar interests as far as what was going on. Um, the the lighting, the MLO, model lighting ordinance, in, from our perspective, has been a failure for the simple reason mm -hmm. that it is way too complex. Mm -hmm. A municipality wants simplicity. A lighting designer wants they want to. They love playing and tweaking with numbers and the luminance levels, and getting all, everything just down. And they want to be able to practice their craft. So, the uh, it, it, if it's if it's done right, if it's enacted, it's really a, a great thing. The trouble is, the complexity makes it too tough that or, that municipalities say, "Get it, I'm not going to do it." We're also it, it's right now it's under revision again. Um, the original MLO did not address street lighting. That was a, a problem, and it had to be an appendix that was added to it uh, to address that. It does not. Uh, this was pre-LED too. Their LEDs weren't even a thing back then. They were fringe. It's these 5,700 Kelvin things off that some people were going, "Wow!" And it cost two thousand dollars per luminaire. Okay, but the uh, that's the truth. But the um, with the change in time and the and the, the notion that its lack of um, adoption shows that it it had failed. So there needs to be a means by which more municipalities will actually utilize what we want done. And it's it's kind of a problem because okay, here's a great ordinance if it's if it's applied, but there, there's no simpler version of it. And a municipality will just say, "Hell with it. I'm not going to have any ordinance." much. Let's move on now and talk about dog lighting. That's been done. And it needs to be simpler. It needs to be more contemporary too. And that is being done uh, right now. The, uh, so was it... Sorry, go ahead, oh, Jane. You go. No, you go, Jane. You go. So when you were discussing across organizations, were there differing opinions that made it harder to come to a consensus with the MLO that was from 2011, that version? Was it difficult? Yeah. I mean, owing to, yeah. yes, it, it took a long time. There were lighting designers, lighting manufacturers, and quote unquote, our side as the lighting designers that, that embraced both uh, trains of thought. Uh, when you put down the proper illuminance levels, you're doing the right thing by eliminating, limiting the amount of lumen. The, there's been too much focus on color temperature in the past five years as far as uh, restricting um, sky glow, et cetera. Uh, we, we've learned through um, actual testing that the light in the 90 to 100 degree range is the most causative sky glow, not the light that shines up. You know, think of a lighthouse. Running up, sweeping across the horizon, you can see that glow go on for miles. But a, a searchlight going straight up doesn't have this scattering. So it's light in that zone is what really needs to be discussed and limited. Uh, it, it the notion of of limiting just shortwave light. If that that shouldn't be the only goal. It should also be limiting the total amount of lumens that are being thrown in an area. And I, when we say total, I mean excessive. Our, the five principles is light as necessary. What is necessary? Mm -hmm. That's that is the, the that's up for discussion. It needs to be more validation of excessive light being counterproductive. There needs to be more effort into finding out that asymptotic curve, like 
Ron Gibbons has found at Virginia Tech. We know that you get to a certain point, it no longer helps, and it can actually become harmful. What's interesting is like the, um, so I, I've done, this is going to sound a little bit quirky, but one of the places I spent the first 10 years of my career was parking garages. Okay. I must have done the lighting in um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of parking garages with controls and changing. What I noticed is that people perceive uniformity as bright, as clearer acuity than they per perceive high light levels if there's actually major differences between the amounts of light, low light <laughs> fixtures. Okay, so when you're measuring a parking garage, if you put a foot candle meter under a fixture and it says 37, foot, 37 you know, foot candles, and then in between it is four, and then it's 37 again, that's actually right. not going to be perceived as, as clearer than as safer, you, as safer yeah. or clearer. If you have it like seven below the light fixture and five in between and then seven again, people will actually see, people will actually see better in that environment yes. than they will in the other environment. But if you told them that, hey, you know, I have 50% less light in your factory now or in your parking garage, there's actually 50% less light. They wouldn't believe you. Mm -hmm. They actually wouldn't believe you. I used to take out. Oh, metal, I, I know. I used to take out yeah. metal halides all the time and put in high bay fluorescence. Okay, before LED, all the time. T five, T eight. We did it by the the tractor trailer load of fixtures. Okay, and what we would do is we take the flashlight effect out of the factory, so the all the light goes down. It's, it's uh, forty seven foot candles under the light, and then ten over here and four over there, or whatever. And we would make it like fifteen across the board. And then high vertical foot candles inside the factory, and people would perceive it as brighter, even though there was fifty percent less light. So good design. I mean, this is just industrial parking garages, you know, in places sure. where you know whatever. But like, we would literally reduce the light by fifty percent, and they would they would like it. So this can be accomplished, and people can like it, but it seems like it can't be accomplished without the role of government, especially municipal governments. Do you believe that to be true? When you say without government as far as minimum? Yeah, so I think what needs to happen is that, like you take Flagstaff, Arizona, I think is a dark sky town. Am I correct about that? Or Mont yes, Magantic, the first one. Yeah. Mont Magantic, Quebec, for example. You take, the, you take right. that place. And what's happened there is they put the ordinance in, they enforced it, and then people noticed that it was more beautiful, actually. That's what happened. Mm -hmm. People in the town know, started to notice that you know, that building over there, that one over there is really glary. Can someone send the inspector over there to tell those guys to change their lights so it's not so glary? And so there was like this momentum. But the first thing that had to happen was the ordinances had to go into place. They had needed some enforcement. And then people start to see that better lighting design is actually better. And then it gains momentum. Mm -hmm. It seems like it, 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 where, like, where does this begin if it's going to begin big time? It, like you have these, these spots where it's, it's good. But like, if you wanted to roll this out across North America, where does it begin? Does it begin with the municipalities? Does it begin with the EPA? Does it begin with, you know, the Ministry of the Environment in Canada? Does it where where does this start and really get traction, Pete? You let me know. I'd love to know. <laughs> okay, we're thirty years going on it, and we still think, you know, we talk about it every day and think the world knows about it, and yet I give presentations all over the world. And I, and I get, man, I never thought of that. And then I, I, I tell them after I, I do a thing, I, I've now given you the curse. And you're now going to go out and you're going to see bad lighting everywhere. And they, they come back to me and they'll email me later and says, yeah, I do have the curse. You jerk, here it is. Here's, here's these bad lights. What can we do to get the change? So fostering awareness, what is the most efficacious way of doing that? We're, we're, we've tried. Um, Doing what we've done, it's gotten some traction. Um, I would say in when I started going to the light shows in 2006, 2007, manufacturer had some full cutoff product. Now it's the inverse. Most are, and there are uh, there are several that aren't. The Acorn traditional luminaire that's probably the biggest thorn in our side is trying to get rid of of that concept as being good lighting. Because it's not, no lighting designer ever stood next to one of those at night and said, this is a good design. It's not. 
what they're put in for is debut. They want that homey charm, mm-hmm. old time, old fashioned look. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Put it in there. But okay, when that thing initially went in, when the design was done, it initially contained a flame. All right, it was used for wayfinding, and then with electrification, you already had this infrastructure kind of in place. So they put it in, and then suddenly put electric bulbs in there, and it became a lot brighter. And that sort of became the default. When those acorns first went in in Mayberry RFD, the the light that was in them was was like 150 watt incandescent. It was a very warm color. It was kind of nice. It was never meant to illuminate the entire area. It was principally for wayfinding mm-hmm. and saying, "Okay, here I am. It, it's a nice place, but I don't expect to read a newspaper by it." Mm-hmm. Now you've got. Your 400 watts of metal halide glory or 5,000 Kelvin <laughs> LEDs blasting you in the face where you could probably toast bread next to you. Sure. Seen as good design when it's not, but it's so, put in for debut. But and so I, I, I agree with that. But, but so you're, you're talking about like the gaslighting of, of, of Britain and how that look was. Yeah, you had a little flicker flame in right. there. It was a flicker right. flame of gas. It wasn't a, a 400 watt high pressure sodium or whatever. But, um, the, I think you guys, I think the IDA got derailed. I think you guys had good momentum in the 2000s. And I think you guys got derailed by the LED lighting boom. Like, I think you guys just, like everybody else in the business, at, by 2013, all that mattered was lumens per watt. And the wider, the oh, better. The, the wider, yeah, the better. The, the effect at the altar of efficacy. Yeah, for that sure. That was the LED. And it, got, it came yeah. in like a tidal wave and smashed everything that was in the lighting business. And the idea, I think, like, listen, my first podcast, there was a podcast that was called, one of the sixth or seventh or eighth one was called um, IES Relevance. Because around 2000, and it was about the IES being relevant, but Tom Butters called me, he was pissed off from the IES. He's like, why did you call it that? And I said, listen to the show, Tom. So he listened to the show and he loved it, but. There was a point at which, you know, there was so much, everyone was looking at the DLC because they were controlling mm-hmm. who you, what you could sure. sell, that you can't sell it if it doesn't have a DLC label on it. To the point right. where the IES was kind of pushed aside as a voice in the industry and the DLC was there telling everybody what to do. And um, that, you know, the, the, the subsequent response to that was the changing of massive amounts of outdoor lighting. And the problem's probably worse now than it was 10 years before that because all those low Kelvin temperature HPSs are gone and now you have mm-hmm. 5,000K glare bombs everywhere. And Yeah, well, what we're, what we're going to hope is that these 5,000K uh, first version stuff are going to fail because the drivers are going to fail or we're seeing chromaticity shift and people don't like the change in colors that went in with the first stuff. So... Yeah, it's there. And just, just as an aside, I left IDA in 2011 and came back in 2016. I became a full-time caregiver. So I was not involved during that span of time. So, so anyway, um, yeah, I know. During that time, it was a very weak period uh, for getting it done. But you were also looking at there was the um, energy star criteria that the DOE and Jim Broderick and everybody was talking about getting it done. And they partnered with the DLC. And I know plenty of lighting manufacturers that were frustrated beyond belief because changing the efficacy numbers so fast that the, uh, you know, it, it was a big problem. So yes, the, the efficacy genie was out of the bottle and thankfully that's becoming an asymptotic uh, curve as well. So we're no longer really talking about that now. What, the, what we are seeing is improvement in the lower Kelvin um, output, but we're also seeing LED manufacturers gaming the CCT game by adding more red, thus lowering the CCT and not limiting the total amount of short wavelength emission. So, we, as everybody knows, the CCT is a terrible metric for trying to quantify short wavelength emission, but that's something where all the organizations are going to have to come together and come up with a new way of, of measuring vector power distribution. You had a question? Quite frankly, I don't think that any organization that was advocating for dark skies wouldn't have lost its footing through the tsunami of LEDs that came through um, from 2008 onward. So I, I don't, 
fault any organization for being um, impacted by that. What I do want to say is that the IDA has their dark sky compliant certified lighting. And um, one issue that I have seen with that is that I worry that people may think it's a carte blanche answer. As in, if you just install dark sky lighting, then that will be a complete solution. However, if you take a 20,000 lumen LED and you put it at a 10 foot mounting height, you're going to get a lot of issues. So I think also important uh, tools are controls and turning lights on and off only as needed. So how has the IDA um, started to bring that into the discourse of their message? Like the first thing was combining our joint message with the IES by saying it's it's not just fixture design. I mean, initially, our when we first started out, it was all about being full cutoff. Then it became color temp, and now it's it's broadening out even further to address total lumen. Um, that that's that's as you say, it's important. It's an evolving task. You know, we CCT wasn't an issue. You know, in in two thousand four. No one, no one talked right. about it. No one talked about color rendering in 2004 other than LPS being bad. So the the idea that now color rendering being you have to have 70 to meet a DLC number, that's an arbitrary number. That came out of who? How, why, why, is, why does it have to be that? We lived with 24 in high-pressure sodium for half a century. There was no hue and cry. we got to get rid of these HPSs because we can't see. We need higher CRIs. It just sort of appeared when the efficacy ratcheting was going on. So there needs to be some, you know, close inspection as to why that number was chosen and justify it. Um, that we five decades of just fine was twenty four or twenty five in HPS. So we need to other metrics are being thrown in now as well that we need to really say why why is this being done um, by broadening out with the IES. Realizing that we actually do have same goals is, is a phenomenal thing. And we have been uh, well received by having, you know, working with the IES in, in such a, a, a close amount that, you know, I looked at it and said, you know, this is what my, my the first slide for all my presentations that I've been giving since 2006 has been those points. And so it's, it's really not anything new. It's just that the lighting community is now saying, yeah, I guess this makes sense and love to hear it. What else can we do? We can't certify installation. Um, we, can, we can only certify performance of product as best as we can do. So if somebody wants to take a, a really bright product and use it really poorly, well, yeah, we, we can't police that in a way. Um, a, a difference would be our new community-friendly outdoor sports lighting criteria. That is a purely installation performance-based metric. Um, we don't care how it's done, just as long as it meets this these trespass uh, uh, numbers. So that that's the uh, uh, that's distances not the same as our fixture seal approval program. And right, that program comes with a site visit, correct? It. it it can. Um, it's there's a two two phases to that. One is the evaluation of the photometric files to say that yes, this is a design that meets it. If if field validation is necessary or wanted, it can be done. That's not a, a prerequisite. Um, and it's when when these these installations go in, the, the the cutoff is exquisite. It's really amazing how well. Contemporary design can be with sports lighting. It's not that hideous glare that you see from four miles away. A really well-designed field, two hundred feet away, you can't see the the you know, the luminaires are barely visible, but you see a nice illuminated uh, field. So it's it's really a compelling thing to see how well it, it can be done. Um, but it, it's there's really no way to uh, you know, a a roadway design or something of that nature can be validated. All they can do is put in a product that, that meets our certification and then hope that they're putting it in according to IESRP. The, uh, the controls for the, for the community sports lighting is such an obvious application. I could never think of a better mm -hmm. one than, than that. Um, 
Let me, we're almost up at an hour here, so we should probably start oh, thinking about, wow. can you, can you believe it? I know it's crazy. Eh? Yeah, I know. <laughs> it goes fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. What about a certification? What if we, you know, if, if there was a way to create a certification that um, allowed people with LCs to become dark sky field inspectors or something like that? That's that is a goal. We 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 want to have that very thing happen. Um, at present, it's um, there's you know a very few stadiums. Otherwise, it's me flying to all these places and, and going out there and measuring. Sure. Um, but with the, the the program is quite new. It's only been around for about eighteen months. Um, there are about a dozen fields uh, installations that have been validated by design. Um, I've made visitations. To just one field in um, Panama City Beach, Florida, and I was all set to go to a uh, new field in Bee Cave, Texas. Along came this COVID thing, and people aren't, you know, I have to have to see the field lighted in order to do a, a validation, and they're not even lighting the fields because there's nobody playing on them. Sure. So it, it's in a hiatus right now, but we'd love to have the very thing you're talking about is LCs in regions that can go out and do the certification. The uh, I guess there's there's kind of two things I could we could kind of wrap up with here but um I think our society considering you know all the stuff going on and people are obviously going to hear my voice that when I talk about safety I'm very I'm I'm so suspect because you you can write anything off to safety. I mean, you know, Ontario's got a lot of nuclear power plants that create nice clean energy. <laughs> that were built years ago and people want to shut them off for safety. Right. But then we have to burn coal. Right. So it, it, like everything has its trade-offs in life, right. With, with safety and you, and, and what happens is oftentimes the people um, making the safety argument seem to feel like they're in a position where they, it can't be questioned. And I think that's you know, what it's also, there's also a problem with safety that, Relying on others to do it for you mm. makes you less safe. If you're, if you're, you think the government is going to make or whomever is making everything safe for you, you become less aware. You know, if you're at an intersection and you're waiting for the little man to walk across, people will do that instead of looking to see if a car is coming. Sure. Okay. Uh, where are the where are the most pedestrian accidents? Where they have the little man walking or have a or don't walk. So I mean, Jane, that was Paul. That, that was Jane, but that was Paul Bogart's point when he was talking about the blue light thing on all the campuses in his book. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like what causes more damage: not having the blue light system on campus and that never that doesn't get used, mm-hmm. or telling the kids that hey, if you're ever attacked on campus, <laughs> yeah. There's a one of these blue light blue things every boxes. thirty every thirty feet, and we have the place lit up like a prison yard, right? Yeah. And so all you got to yeah. do is go. Well, am I going to get attacked? Like, what do you mean? Is it is it is, is this is there like attackers everywhere here that are going to come and attack yeah. me? There's almost like a a sense that the 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 striving to eliminate all risk causes its own. Pro- mental problems or something. Like, sure, it causes complacency. It, it but I causes, think it's worse. You know, I think it's worse. It makes things no, ugly. No, okay. It makes things ugly. Like you, you, you drive down Alden Road in 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 Markham here now, and all it is is like a run of glare bombs, like just massive mm-hmm. LED five thousand K lights shining right into yeah. the street. It's just it's gross. Yeah. It's offensive. Ostensibly put in to be safe. Exactly. And it, well, yeah. Well, we're losing. Yes, we're losing this whole connection to the natural environment for something that isn't even really a gain of safety. And I will tell you that as a woman, the last thing I want to do as someone in the lighting industry is to lure people somewhere where they think that they're safe when they're not. So, to your point, Pete, with complacency. You know, if things are lit up to a certain way to be inviting when they aren't actually really safer, 
you know, we could be actually creating less safe environments by giving a perceived sense of safety that really isn't true. Sure. And that's the lurking in the shadows concept. If you've, you've created shadows by having a tremendous amount of glare, well, you're safe now. No, you're not. And, and this comes back to experiential. How do you get people to experience good lighting when they've only seen bad? And if we can come up with a way, say, uh, you know, some sort of demonstration saying this, let us show you what we're talking about. I would love to see something like that happen, where it could be a traveling road show, where it could be something at a, a trade show, where it can be a, a, something visual where people will see it. But incorporating, getting more involved with lighting designers and trying to get their trade up into going into the dark sky arena. Um, a lighting designer is, is really an ally to us because they're not going to see a building and put 2,000 watts of glory and blast it onto it and say it's lighted, it's done well, as opposed to strategic placement of light to shadow, to see form, to see depth at night. Our, I, you know, whether the um, our architectural features are becoming highlighted, that's good design. And a, a lighting designer that would do that is very much a dark sky ally. We'd, we'd love to see more of that going on, as opposed to the well, afterthought of floodlighting. I have to say, Jane, I was surprised when you told me that the lighting design community wasn't fully behind this 100%. You told me on our first show that we did that the lighting designers have a lot of work to do just among their own community with awareness. Yeah, Absolutely. at our annual general meeting that we had in uh, Utah two years ago, there was 190 people present, two lighting designers. Yeah. So we need to reach out and work closely with them. I will say that the IDA knows darkness, lighting designers know light, and that there is a lot of gap in between. And I think that there are lighting design strategies that could be better employed to actually uh, make better darkness. And there could also be darkness strategies that could be better employed to bring more darkness back into our lighting plans. I, I see a disconnect there that could be better harnessed um, to make for uh, a more harmonious message to get to the people like distributors who may be confused in all of this back and forth. Oh, the distributors sure, know nothing. The, Pete, the distributors, yeah. they know, the average light distributor, I, not concerned at all about dark well, sky. Well, a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll hear dark sky and they think, oh, you guys want to turn off the light. Our name is <laughs> dark sky, not dark brown. Yeah, sure. They, you, you can have a well-lighted area. <laughs> you can have it suitably lighted. Everybody's happy. That's what we're about. We're not saying turn it off. We're saying make it right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pete Strasser, you've been a great guest. Yeah. Jane, any final okay. thoughts for Pete? I, I think that we kind of picked apart some of the challenges that the IDA faces uh, uh, amongst all the schools of thought which are out there. And that conversations like these just help to better angle our, our compass towards the uh, darker planet. So thank you. Pete. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Let's do this again. Keystone Technologies. Go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot com, baby. That's keep it easy. Just keep it easy with with Keystone. Light made easy, folks. K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot com. KeystoneTech.com. Hey, they got outdoor light fixtures. And they're sponsoring the Dark Sky Show. Why? Because we all got to get behind Dark Sky as an association, as an industry. This is a problem that we can solve. And there's a lot of reasons why we need to solve it. That's why we're doing these episodes with Jane Slade and I to get the word on the street that we're up and ready ready to go. And we thank Pete, Sp Pete Strasser, technical director of the IDA, coming on the show, um, talking about the various issues related to this. And we're hoping as an association that we can really start to buy in all of our people, train them, which we're going to do in Ellis Evolve, coming out in, in hopefully February, maybe March, the whole dark sky module of that. Ellis Evolve is already out, if you're listening to this, by the way. 
But the Dark Sky module coming out then, Pete Strasser is going to help us with that. And, you know, gosh, I mean, it, this is an issue, guys. We can fix this. We can fix this. And you know why we should? Because it'll make it more beautiful. It'll make it more safe. Or, you know what? Safety is not everything. I mean, so shit. You know, I mean, we live in a society that's turned safety into a virtue. Guys, there's a time. There's trade-offs. And what are we trading off for these glare bombs everywhere? What are we trading off? What are we giving up? Why do we need so much light? We don't need that much light at night. We need to fix this problem. We need to, we need to have the right light at night. We need to control it. We need to lower the Kelvin temperature. Even more complicated than that. It's not even Kelvin temperature. It's, it's something even different. Um, we need to lower the spectral distribution. Did I get that right, Scotty? Yeah, that's the word. Spectral distribution. So that... Um, you know, we're not tricking other, other types of wildlife and all, all manner of things, man. We really need to do it. One of the reasons why I believe in it is because it, it's actually very offensive. A lot of the LED light fixtures are light, tras light trespassers. I got one on my street shining in my son's room, in my daughter's room. It drives me crazy. We can fix this, folks, as an industry. So let's get after it. Go to NALD.org. Thanks to Pete Strasser and Jane Slade and you for listening. Bye for now.